0: Ukraine basically made headway in making its case to members of the global south who are becoming more frustrated with Russia Mm -hmm. because it sabotaged the Black Sea grain deal.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley and Hollywood and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, August 11th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about the Russia-Ukraine peacemaking efforts being led by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Saudi Arabia recently convened a wide range of world powers, including Brazil and China, in Jeddah to help figure out a possible exit strategy for the conflict in Europe. And as Julia explains, it actually went surprisingly well. And later, Teddy Schleifer is here to discuss billionaire Larry Ellison's next huge investment in Republican presidential candidate Tim Scott and whether that kind of money can change the shape of the GOP race. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy friday everybody welcome to the powers that be i hope you're getting ready for a wonderful summer weekend full of beers watermelon grilling whatever summer traditions you enjoy i'm joined today by julia Yaffe to talk about not a summer tradition. (laughs) And that would be (laughs) peace talks around the Russia-Ukraine war led by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Julia, thanks for joining me. We talked about this a little bit on our last podcast together, and I at least was marginally dismissive of MBS kind of trying to wave the negotiator flag, you know, called it diplo washing in part because of Saudi Arabia's histories of human rights abuses and the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, obviously. But reading your latest piece for Puck, it sort of sounds like he's doing a decent job so far convening various parties from around the world to figure out maybe, 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 maybe some kind of roadmap to an exit strategy out of this conflict. Can you brief our listeners on what went down in Saudi Arabia? A few days ago?
0: Sure, sure. Though I will say that I too was uh, dismissive and hesitant. And again, so far, we don't know what's going to come out of this. But basically, what happened is last weekend, in Jeddah on the Red Sea at the Ritz-Carlton, the representatives of over 40 countries, including the US, including China, including members of the so-called Global South, met to discuss basically a way forward in Ukraine. Russia was not invited, Ukraine was the organizer of this conference, and Saudi Arabia was the convener. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan went, Toria Newland went, who is uh, a big deal at the State Department. And they met with Andrei Yermak, the basically Volodymyr Zelensky's right-hand man. They met on the sidelines with the Chinese representative. And it sounds like a lot of it was just talking. I mean, in the general form, but that Ukraine basically made headway in making its case to members of the global south who are definitely, though they are standing on the sidelines and don't see how this is their war, are becoming more frustrated with Russia Mm -hmm. because it sabotaged the, the Black Sea grain deal. And for lack of other forums, this one was not bad, I think, in part because beggars can't be choosers, but also, you know, Saudi Arabia managed to get a lot of people to come, including China, which is a big deal. And it sounds like they agreed on very broad brushstroke things like food security is important. Nuclear security is important. Territorial integrity is important. Devil's in the details. But again, given where we are in this war, even that isn't bad.
1: In reading your piece, I too was struck by the fact that, like, Zambia and South Africa, Mexico, um, Brazil, like, the, like, Brazil, the glo- yeah. Yeah, the global South, um, they showed up. And, you know, Africa in, in particular, their governments have a tradition because of colonialism of being very skeptical of the West and former colonial powers. And if not, were at certain points outright socialist, at least sort of like sympathetic to uh, socialist regimes, and and you know South Africa too, like their uh, government has totally sent sent emissaries during the conflict to Russia. So that was interesting to me as an Africa dork.
0: Yeah, but also what's interesting is you know they're BRICS members, right? Uh, Brazil is a member of BRICS. Remember this acronym that was formed, I think, right before the 2008 financial crisis of these emerging economies that everybody was super eager to invest in, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then it became BRICS with South Africa. So this is an alliance that Russia has Mm -hmm. been trying really hard to hold up and flex, you know, to say, you know, it's not just NATO, we have friends too. And this conference to which Russia was not invited, Brazil showed up to, even though President Lula has not, basically condemned Russia for invading. China was there. They called Russia afterwards, but still they showed up. Uh, South Africa came, which is also interesting. They've been having their own separate drama because of the international criminal court and the warrant out for Putin's arrest. South Africa is a signatory to the party to that court. And there's a BRICS summit coming up that Vladimir Putin was in Johannesburg in South Africa that Vladimir Putin was supposed to travel to. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of hand-wringing about, will they arrest him if he comes? South Africa is asking Putin not to come, to not put them in that position. So you're seeing these interesting shifts because they're not aligned. They're not with the US, but they're not quite with Russia either. At first
1: glance, one might think that Saudi Arabia and Russia might be sort of sympathetic toward each other autocratic regimes like mm-hmm. petroleum powers, etc. But, you know, it, it really jumped out at me in your piece that there is no love lost between these two countries. They both compete and have competed for for an investment. Uh, they obviously like huge energy powers. Is Russia like not even going to get anywhere near these talks because of their historic contempt for Saudi Arabia and ipso facto MBS?
0: Well, I think MBS and Saudi Arabia, again, is trying to demonstrate that they can talk to anybody, right? That they can talk to China, they can talk to America, they can talk to Ukraine, and they can talk to Russia. So uh, MBS has been making it known that he is trying to, for example, lean on Russia to release Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal Mm -hmm. reporter that was detained in Russia in March he tried to take credit for Brittany Griner's release, but he did also help negotiate a 300-person prisoner exchange in which U.S. and European nationals were involved. So I think ABS is trying to show that he can talk to everybody. And even though there's this past, uh, what I didn't know before reporting this piece is that, you know, Saudi Arabia was just basically like a CIA offshore and that they were, you know, they were on opposite sides from Russia uh, during the Cold War. Now they're mm-hmm. they're competitors for as oil suppliers, but they're also in OPEC together, right? So mm-hmm. again, it it's complicated. But you know, America it's hard for America to negotiate this deal because Russia will not talk to them, right? But China is also not fully trusted by both parties. So Saudi Arabia is trying to demonstrate here that. Look, we have relationships with everybody in a way that nobody else does except for maybe India.
1: So you interviewed Ian Bremmer from the Eurasia Group about Saudi Arabia's efforts here. And he sort of he was talking almost like an ESPN pundit, like talking about like Major League Baseball like <laughs> at, at, during the All-Star break. It's kind of scoring right. the Saudis' reputation at the moment in the world. And he said, quote, the Saudis have had just about the best year of anyone diplomatically Speaking, And he goes on to say they did the Iranian deal with the Chinese. Um, they've gotten the Syrians engaged with the Arab League. They got the Live agreement <laughs> basically taking over yeah. the PGA. They signed Cristiano Ronaldo. Now they're hosting the Ukraine talks.
0: They got Benzema.
1: Yeah. So he says also, quote, after Jeddah, there's broad near global consensus for the idea of territorial integrity, one that the Chinese can get behind, which is important, and the U.S., The devil's in the details, yes. But compared to where we were six months ago, I give the Saudis a lot of credit. That's Ian Bremmer. Mm -hmm. This does feel like a W for Saudi Arabia so far.
0: Yes, I I think it is. That said, the war is not over yet. What does territorial integrity mean for China? I think that means Taiwan becomes part of China, right? Mm. So uh, maybe they agree on it when it comes to Ukraine, but not everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And... It's a W for now, but, you know, it's a very long road ahead and it's really, really steep going uphill. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a tactical victory, but not one that ends the whole thing.
1: Julia, thanks so much for your insight. Have a good weekend. You too, Peter. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Larry Ellison pumping a lot of money into the campaign of Tim Scott. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com powers that be, netsuite.com powers that be. That's netsuite.com powers that be. Hey, powers that be listeners. I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Welcome back to The Powers That
2: Be. I'm Ben Landy, here with Teddy Schleifer. Hey, man, how's it going? I'm well. Thanks for having me. So you reported earlier this week that Larry Ellison, the Oracle billionaire who has given Tim Scott 30 or $35 million already into his super PAC over the last few years, mm-hmm. he recently either wrote or committed to writing another giant check for Tim Scott we don't know if it's landed yet in a super PAC, if it's already there. But interestingly, this didn't show up in election reporting disclosures the other week. Why does it appear to have been hidden? That's the whole point, Ben.
3: operatives have gotten very, very good at playing games with disclosure deadlines. So different political committees file at different schedules. It might be monthly. It might be quarterly. In, in this case, with super PACs, it's semi-annually. So if you make a contribution on, let's say, June 28th, it would show up last month and it wouldn't just show up for members of the media. It would show up for rival campaigns who, you know, you can bet read these reports very closely. But if you made a contribution just a few days later, let's say on like July 2nd, you know, just after the June 30th semi-annual disclosure deadline, that July 2nd check wouldn't show up on a report until the end of January after the Iowa caucuses. So there's a huge difference in terms of when these gifts become public with just a couple of days difference in the date the check is actually cut. So the reason, Ben, that this Larry Allison check did not show up on the most recent Tim Scott Super PAC filings is because they didn't want it to. And my understanding is that this kind of eight-figure check, $10 million plus from Larry Ellison to support Tim Scott, was intentionally timed to not come in the first half of the year and therefore be public information. Now, we hear Pac wrote about it, so people know. We don't have all the details. That's okay. But the disclosure uh, hijinks was intentional, and and that's why the Ellison check is going to be semi-secretive for a long time. Yeah, that makes sense. That campaigns would want to enjoy
2: some informational asymmetry. They have this check; they can start using the money whenever it actually hits the wire. But their rivals in the media don't necessarily know about it. This information found its way to you, though. I, I mean, I don't. I don't want to blow up your your sourcing on this, but um, what's the reaction been to you actually getting this information out there?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, uh, lots of uh, rivals are are curious about this. Obviously, you know, even people on kind of the Tim Scott hard dollar campaign side, you know, the people who actually work for the candidate himself are curious about this, like, like the Ellison check has kind of been a bit of like a mythical, you know, unicorn uh, that everyone is trying to learn as much about for a long time, because he has always sort of been spoken of, you know, including on this podcast and my reporting, uh, but never actually seen, right? Ellison, we know, was at the Tim Scott campaign announcement Sitting there in the bleachers, just with other VIPs, Scott was calling him, you know, one of his mentors. But the contribution was never actually made, uh, at least for the first half of this year. So that's why I know there's been a ton of speculation among normally plugged-in Scott people about what's going on with Larry Ellison. So I think the reaction has been a combination of like relief, right, that this check that they expected to come is is finally coming, and and elation that they think this could make Scott. Competitive because it's coming at, at a time when he is showing some signs of life in a way that like no Republican not named Donald Trump has yet to show in this entire Republican primary. So people are excited, but it's also like meeting their expectations. Right. It's not it's not as if, you know, Charles Koch just decided that he's going to spend, you know, his entire political war chest on on tim scott that would be surprising like this is this is great news for tim scott but it also meets expectations so that's why it's more of a relief than it is like jubilation
2: yeah i can understand the argument for you know obviously some extra money is going to make tim scott a little bit more competitive it it lets his team or at least the super PAC buy more ad impressions across the states where they're really trying to make a difference especially iowa potentially new hampshire but do you get the sense that some donors worry ellison is wasting his money here, I mean, obviously, it's something like, I was just looking this up before, 0.03% of his net worth. I mean, it's truly mm. <laughs> nothing, the amount of money that, I mean, it's, it's, it's couch cushion money for this guy. But Scott's at something like 3% in the polling nationally. He's a bit higher in Iowa right now. Yeah. But frankly, it's hard to imagine, like, even all the money in the world can make a difference in this campaign when Trump has just been so, so dominant.
3: Sure. I mean, the donor kind of fantasy that there will be some Republican candidate, not named Ron DeSantis and not named Donald Trump, that could kind of be the nominee, it seems more and more fantastical by the day, right? The fact is, lots of Republican donors thought that DeSantis was kind of the only shot they had to beat Trump, and you know maybe that wasn't even that good of a shot, right? Maybe it was like something like you know forty percent chance of of, of working, um, you know, if you asked some. You know Republican poo-bahs in you know January of this year or February of this year, like oh, what are the chances that Trump is not the nominee? Like you'd be like, hey, maybe forty percent. Now I feel like there's this sense of nihilism and and dejection and and just general uh, malaise in kind of major donor community right now that there's really nothing that can be done uh, to stop Donald Trump. And and obviously history is is being recorded in real time here And these indictments that continue to uh, allow Trump to play the victim and, and raise small dollar money. And that doesn't help. And frankly, like, you know, we're now, uh, this is a very obvious point, but it's worth making, you know, we're now eight years into Trump coming down the escalator into uh, American public life. And I don't really know if, if if, you know, the richest people in the world, and frankly, the advertisers and, you know, data wizards they hired, like, have answered a very simple question, which is like, how do you make a dent in Trump's favorability and appeal to the Republican base. Even if you had all the money in the world, like how do you how do you do it? People will say, "Oh, we figured out X Y and Z in the polling and blah blah blah, but like Trump has been as popular as as he's ever been, you know, even as he's being indicted again and again and it's not really clear that any money could work at all on, on anything. So that's why, you know, although we we are excited to report about Larry Ellison and then Tim Scott, candidly Ben, like Sometimes I wonder whether any or anything I'm reporting even really matters. I'm like, who cares? You know, Trump is clearly the heavy favorite to be the Republican nominee, and you know, I was on Kara's Pivot podcast earlier this week, and you know, Frank Luntz was on, who I know Tina interviewed for Puck uh, a few days ago, and I asked you know Frank Luntz a very simple question, which is like, do you consider the Republican primary, quote unquote, competitive? Uh, And he said no. And and I think that's the fair answer. Like this Republican primary is not competitive. And, you know, it reminds me, my first job in in Houston, Texas, I covered the Wendy Davis gubernatorial campaign in 2014. And, you know, I wrote so much about the tactics and the fundraising and the super PACs and blah, blah, blah. And I was covering it like it was this, you know, five or 10 point race where the little things really mattered. And, and Davis got smoked by 21 points, and I felt like I wasted my time. So there's a little bit of that right now with me, where, where and I wonder if it's true with other reporters, just to break the fourth wall here, where, like, <laughs> is anything we're doing really mattering? I mean, Trump clearly is the heavy favorite to be the Republican nominee, and I think donors share our sense of a lack of meaning in, in what we do, um, where we don't really know if this race is competitive, and if it's not, then who cares what Larry Allison's doing?
2: Yeah, I I get that. And Teddy, you and I have talked about this offline plenty of times now. Uh, It's definitely a dilemma, not just for political operatives, but for the media too, as we cover this race. Although, you know, at at the same time, I was just reviewing some of the charges against Trump this morning. And and we really are in such uncharted, unprecedented territory. I I don't think anybody can say what the world is going to look like six months from now. You know, Trump may soon be facing his fourth indictment. The federal charges against him are extremely serious, he could be facing real jail time. It is hard to imagine him actually proactively dropping out of the race ahead of a potential conviction, but I, I really don't think we know it's going to happen.
3: Yeah, right. And, but but that, that that's an argument where the you know the the legal risks to Trump are more significant than the political risks, right? And like, and and you know maybe we need more more Eric Gardner and, and less less Teddy Schleifer out there. <laughs> Teddy, before I let you go, I, I'm curious, do you think
2: that Ellison's giving is a positive signal for other big donors to kind of get in alongside him and supporting Tim Scott, deciding this is the guy we've got to coalesce around? This is going to be the number one uh, anti-Trump vessel? Or, or do they kind of look at Ellison's giving and think, all right, this is the fifth richest man in the world. He's got this. Let's just let him handle it.
3: Something, a little bit of both. I mean, I mean, Ellison is, is, is a bit of a lone wolf, and I would not say that With all due respect to Larry Ellison, I would not say he is, like, influential with other donors um, in the way that, like, Paul Singer or Steve Schwartzman or, frankly, even, like, a David Sachs is with with kind of other wealthy people. Like, Ellison is, like, seen, fairly or not, as, like, a bit of a weirdo and iconoclast and and not someone who has influence with other wealthy people. That being said, like, coincidentally, I would say other Republican money types – are excited about Scott and like, you know, I talked to Scott Bundlers who say, you know, their events are oversubscribed, blah, blah, blah. So so I think there was kind of two things happening at the same time here. One is that Ellison is finally getting off his ass and getting in the game here. Um, and then at the same time, you know, the, the DeSantis struggle is, is real. And that's motivating other Republicans, as, as Tara wrote in, in Puck the other week, to have this sort of wandering eye, right, where they're looking into other, uh, non-DeSantis candidates. So like, to some extent, I think Tim Scott's fortunes are being driven more by Ron DeSantis' struggles than by kind of the uh, the charms of Larry Ellison.
2: Yeah, Teddy, we'll, we'll see what happens, both with the giving and with uh, Tim Scott's fortunes in this race. For me, it's, it's sort of hard to imagine him as anything other than a, a potential VP. I don't see him surging this race, but again, we'll see what happens. Trump is facing a hell of a lot of charges at the federal and state level. But um, we got to leave it there. Thanks, man, for stopping by. Always appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday.